This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Just as there is no such thing as the perfect spouse, almost no such thing, there is also almost no such thing as the perfect ally. Other nations that we call our partners, interesting word, and there are lots of them, they have their own problems and pursuits which sometimes will grate up against American purposes and ideals. That is true of Israel. It's true of France. It is oh so true of Canada. I'm kidding on Canada. Canada might actually be almost the perfect ally. But the, the one we are going to look at tonight is Saudi Arabia. Steadfast, stable, swimming in all of that oil we like, but also an embarrassment on the human rights front, the place that most of the 9-11 hijackers came from, a monarchy whose talent for attracting enemies might suggest that U.S. coziness with Saudi Arabia represents a liability. Well, all of that is debatable. So let's do it. Yes or no to this statement. The special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here at the Kaufman Music Center in New York will vote to choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Let's meet our debaters. Again, the motion, the special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. One team arguing for the motion. First, let's welcome Madawi Al-Rashid. Hi, Madawi. Hello, John. So, Madawi, uh, you are a visiting professor from the London School of Economics. You've written a lot of books on history and religion and politics in Saudi Arabia. Now, your, your name gives us a clue to your history. You are a member of the Rashidi family, and that is a dynasty that fought a lot of wars with the House of Saud in the early 19th century. So uh, what I want to ask you is, is there any separating your family's personal story from the debate that we're going to have here tonight? Thank you, John. Uh, it's true that my family had fought uh, battles with the Al Saud, but I can't claim that I personally participated in these battles. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Let's welcome again Madawi Al Rashid. And Madawi, um, please tell us who your partner is here tonight. Yes, my partner in the debate, Mark yeah. Lagan. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Lagan. In addition to right now being at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, you have held uh, a lot of positions in government, including service as an ambassador. Uh, you are a de deputy assistant secretary in the Department of State. Um, you're also a former president of Freedom House. And Freedom House publishes a report that assesses political and civil liberties around the world. So what does it take to get a, a passing grade? And how does Saudi Arabia usually do? So Freedom House rates every country in the world on political freedom and on civil liberties, from one being best to seven being worst. The annual scores came out, and Saudi Arabia was a seven on both oh. in the worst, meaning repressing dissent, repressing women, repressing minority faith. Evidence for your side tonight. Indeed. And the team arguing against the motion, please first welcome Gregory Gauze. Hi, Greg. Um, Greg, you are professor and head of international affairs department at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. Um, you have been focusing for quite a while on the Arabian Peninsula, the Persian Gulf. Um, and you recently wrote an article looking at U.S.-Saudi relations in which you quoted President Obama. And President Obama's statement on the situation was, quote, unquote, it's complicated. Uh, is it going to look any less complicated after tonight's debate? Uh, John, I... I think it won't be any less complicated. We don't have that kind of power up here. But I think that the folks will understand why the relationship with Saudi Arabia continues to be in America's best interest. Okay. Thank you very much. And tell us who your partner is, please. Uh, my partner is the very talented Ambassador James Jeffrey. Ladies and gentlemen, James Jeffrey. Jim, you were uh, assistant to the president. You were a deputy national security advisor in the George W. Bush administration. Also a longtime diplomat. You were ambassador to Turkey. You were ambassador to Iraq. Not long ago, you gave our new secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, some job advice. 
You pointed out that what counts is, and I'm quoting you, mastering the mind-numbingly varied, ambiguous, and often contradictory expectations of the job. Are you feeling sorry for this guy? (laughs) Not at all, John. He's got the best job in the world. I've had the privilege of working with him at times, and he's going to do great. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Jim Jeffries, and the team arguing against the motion. Let's begin with round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. The motion is the special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. And here to argue for the motion, Madawi al-Rashid. She is author of Muted Modernists, The Struggle Over Divine Politics in Saudi Arabia. Ladies and gentlemen, Madawi al-Rashid. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. The U.S.-Saudi relationship was dubbed from the very beginning as a special relationship. From the moment uh, American President Roosevelt met King Ibn Saud, the founder of Saudi Arabia, uh, on the 14th of February 1945. At the core of this relationship uh, were two issues. First, oil, and second one is security. The special relationship meant that the U.S. offered Saudi Arabia uncritical and unconditional support for more than seven decades. We will argue that this is no longer in the U.S. best national interest. Let me just explain how this relationship developed. In the 1960s, Saudi Arabia was a very useful ally Uh, during the Cold War. Its oil wealth, its strategic location, and believe it or not, its conservative Islamic tradition all helped to defend against and ultimately defeat nationalism and communism. This special relationship meant that Saudi Arabia became important for the U.S., and even more so after 1979. So why 1979? Remember, in 1979, the main ally of the U.S., the Shah of Iran, was toppled. And at that moment, U.S.-Iranian relation became extremely difficult and hostile. So the U.S. decided to put all its baskets in the, all its eggs, sorry, in the Saudi basket. And therefore, this relationship became even more special. Today, this special relationship has become counterproductive. The absolute monarchy of Saudi Arabia has become uh, difficult to sustain. First, this regime oppresses its own people, marginalizes women, spreads lethal conservative religious ideology, and aspires to become a hawkish regional superpower. This doesn't help U.S. interests, but actually harms them. Unconditional U.S. support legitimizes the regime's excesses and authoritarianism and makes the U.S. vulnerable to accusations of double standards, supporting dictatorship in one country while promoting human rights, and democracy in other countries. More than that, since 9-11, many Americans have asked legitimate questions. Given that 15 out of 19 hijackers were Saudis, Americans began to ask, are Saudis our friends or foe? Mdali Rashid, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. Our motion is the special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. And here making his opening statement against this motion, Gregory Gauze. He is the professor and head of international affairs department at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. Ladies and gentlemen, Gregory Gauze. So it seems to me that, that if the argument's about values, they win, we walk off the stage. Saudi Arabia does not share our values. We are very happy to stipulate that. But the question here is not for us about values, it's about interests. If we uh, ran our Middle East policy based only 
on dealing with people who shared our values, we really wouldn't have many people to talk to in the Middle East. The Middle East is a, a, a very strategic area. It's in flames right now. And having a relationship with a stable country in the Middle East that has influence in Syria, in Yemen, in, other par- in Iraq, in other parts of the Middle East that are in flames, we think is actually very useful to the United States. I think my friend Madawi's best argument here is the fact that Saudi Arabia has been the home of this very conservative, xenophobic, intolerant version of Islam that we shorthandly call Wahhabism, and that Wahhabism has become, in its various incarnations once it left the country, a threat to the United States. So there is a logic to this, undoubtedly, but I don't think that that logic holds through the entire argument. And let me tell you why. It's more complicated than that. Lots of Saudis have joined ISIS, but lots of Tunisians have joined ISIS. Tunisia, the one success story of the Arab Spring. Europeans have joined ISIS. Even some Americans. It's hard to say that Wahhabism was the thing that drove them to join ISIS. And in fact, these people in ISIS and Al-Qaeda now want to kill the Saudis and they identify the Saudi regime as one of their major opponents. In fact, counterterrorism is, I think, one of the major reasons why we need to sustain our relationship with Saudi Arabia. We know that because of cooperation with the Saudis, there have been plots foiled. In 2010, a plot by al-Qaeda to ship explosives from Yemen to the United States in airplanes was foiled because of cooperation with Saudi Arabia. But also an extremely important part of this cooperation with Saudi Arabia is not simply the intelligence sharing. It's also that we need the Saudis on the ideological front against ISIS and al-Qaeda. We, the United States, have no standing in those arguments in the Muslim world. We can say this is bad, this is wrong. No one in the Muslim world listens to us. We're not a Muslim country. What the Saudis do as, as as difficult as it is for us good liberal Americans who really excoriate the Saudis on all sorts of grounds about women's rights and political freedoms for very good reasons, what we cannot do is make the argument against al-Qaeda and ISIS within their own intellectual framework. And really only the Saudis can conduct that fight. That makes them extremely important for the United States and argues for the sustaining of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Thank you, Gregory Goss. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working. The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. The special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third to debate for the motion. Here is Mark Lagan. He is Centennial Fellow and Distinguished Senior Scholar in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, also a former U.S. anti-human trafficking ambassador. Please welcome Mark Lagan. Thanks, John. Thanks, Intelligence Squared, for asking a good question, and thank you for coming. First, the United States does not need Saudi Arabia as much as it once did for oil. 
The relationship the United States had with Saudi Arabia began uh, with oil, and it was premised uh, from the 1973 oil embargo for a good while on access to oil. But due to technological advances like fracking, the United States doesn't need um, uh, Saudi oil as much. There was a decline of some 50% of uh, Saudi oil exports to the United States uh, from April to December of 2014 as a result. Second argument, uh, unconditional backing uh, undercuts U.S. global credibility. Uh, This is a a government, for instance, that stones, lashes, beheads people. It's uh, executed over 150 people each of the last two years without due process. Internationally, um, the Saudis have engaged in harming civilians terribly in their escapades in Yemen, um, killing some 6,000 people in Yemen in the initial month of intervening to try and change um, the government to be more to its liking there. There are now some 3 million people displaced in Yemen. At the same time as the United States is rightly criticizing Russia for harming civilians in Aleppo, in Syria, it stands by by Saudi Arabia and um, is selling massive weapons, uh, 10% of U.S. uh, arms sales go to Saudi Arabia. The Wahhabist um, uh, worldview that Greg Gauz talked about um, has indeed been a pernicious factor. Um, It has, uh, as Hillary Clinton said in a memo uh, quoted in WikiLeaks, um, indicated that donors in Saudi Arabia constitute the most significant source of funding to Sunni terrorist groups worldwide. Next argument. U.S. backing for Saudi Arabia leads to greater targeting of Americans. We help give birth to um, some of the worst extremists by working with Saudi Arabia to create uh, jihadists to fight against the Soviets, um, perhaps in a noble fight then, but they came to turn their eyes on the Saudi government and on the Americans from afar. Um, Our association, backing unconditionally that government of Saudi Arabia, puts a bullseye on the back of Americans because it's easier for extremists to fight Americans as the patrons of Saudi Arabia than to succeed in trying to overthrow the Saudi government right there. The Saudis engage in blackmail. If they really had the overlapping interests that our counterparts will argue that they had, they wouldn't regularly try to withhold intelligence sharing or threaten um, to uh, stop buying our weapons or cooperating with us when, for instance, the Congress passes a law allowing American citizens with the families of 9-11 victims to sue the Saudi government. Um, Saudi Arabia threatened the UN if it pointed a finger at it in its annual report on children in armed conflict for the mayhem that it has been um, conducting against children in Yemen, threatening to cut off aid, including for Palestinian refugees. Don't buy that this unconditional relationship has to stand as it is. Thank you. Thank Mark you. Lega. And the motion is the special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. And here making his statement against the motion, here is James Jeffrey, former ambassador to Iraq and Turkey. James Jeffrey. Thank you, John. Thank you all for coming. Uh, This motion, as written, is not only, and I quote the moderator, uh, John, verbose, it's also not very clear. But let me try to explain a little bit what a special relationship is, and in particular what it isn't. Actually, I'll start with what it isn't. It isn't unconditional support. I don't know of a Saudi, and I've talked with most of the leaders, who would claim that Barack Obama gave Saudi Arabia unconditional support. Nonetheless, the special relationship continued. We managed to maintain a good relationship with Saudi Arabia despite uh, major disputes over Yemen, major disputes over Iran, because that's what special relationships do. They don't mean you agree on everything, and they certainly don't mean you like each other's domestic policies. What they mean is that they are important players in a construct internationally that you share. So how does Saudi Arabia help us now? Our colleagues gave a wonderful example of how they helped us 20, 30 years ago. My first point is there was certainly no more democratic or lovable then than they are now. In fact, uh, on Mark's scale, they would have been an eight probably 30 years ago. if he'd had an aid. But nonetheless, we managed to do a lot of very important things with him. We've got big business to do with him now. First, oil. 
Back when all this started, according to the other side, uh, it was all about oil dependency, except back in the 1970s, we were in America only beginning to import major amounts of oil. The problem was not oil to America then or for a while when we did import a lot, including from Saudi Arabia, now when we only import uh, about 25 percent. It's about oil to the world. And where does that come from? 25 percent of internationally traded oil comes from the region around Saudi Arabia. And it is the biggest swing producer. That means that Saudi decisions on oil have a huge impact on the international uh, economy that we trade with and have a huge impact on the price of gasoline at your pump. We saw what happens when we get on the wrong side of Saudi Arabia on oil issues in 1974. Uh, That's a good example that uh, close friends don't always support each other. The next thing is the threats we're facing in the region. It isn't quite the Cold War, I grant you, but between ISIS and Iran, we have really terrible problems. Have the Saudis killed uh, inadvertently, to a large degree, uh, 6,000 people in Yemen? I think that's a pretty accurate figure. The side they're struggling against, Iran and friends, have killed deliberately, as a policy, a hundred times that. This isn't a love affair. It's a question of transactional issues to accomplish common goals. Those common goals include uh, fighting ISIS, fighting al-Qaeda, and containing Iran in the area. And there we need uh, the Saudis. My opponents are absolutely right about the blackmail, but I'm here to tell you, I don't know of a major ally of ours who hasn't done similar blackmailing, and had I six more minutes, I would stop with Turkey. Actually, I would probably end with Turkey. Uh, (laughs) But I could throw in even the lovable Germans and some others that you would surprise you. As a guy who's had a bullseye on my back, literally, in the Middle East, it's never been because of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. It's been for many other things. Vote against this bad, bad motion. Thank you, James Jeffrey. And that concludes round one. Now we move on to round two. And in round two, uh, it's freer form. The debaters can address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you in our live audience here in New York City. The motion is this. The special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. Two debaters arguing for this motion, Madawi Al-Rashid and Mark Lagan, they have argued that the unconditional support that they say marked the core character of this relationship since World War II uh, no longer makes sense that the regime itself cannot sustain, especially in light of its record of oppression of minorities, oppression of women, oppression of the free press. Bottom line, the thing that got us in the door, the oil, just doesn't matter as much to us anymore. The team arguing against the motion, Gregory Gauze and James Jeffrey, they concede that Saudi Arabia does not share our values, but they argue that that is irrelevant to the question of whether the relationship is in the interest of the United States. They point out that in many ways we have the same enemies, that they have been cooperative in helping to fight those enemies, particularly in the area of intelligence sharing. First, I want to take a question to Madawi al-Rashid and ask you, your, your partners, your opponents rather, are making the argument, it's implicit, I think, that Saudi Arabia remains stolid. Bottom line, is Saudi Arabia stable? Saudi Arabia is a pressure cooker. And the more there is of repression and uh, sabotaging people's rights, uh, the pressure is going to rise. And one day it's going to implode from within. Uh, I just want to remind you of um, what Woodrow Wilson said about repression, actually, uh, is so connected to revolution. And the U.S., by giving Saudi Arabia unconditional support, is actually sowing the seeds of revolution. Can you respond to that, Greg? Sure. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a pressure cooker, and it's been a pressure cooker for decades. Every generation of American, Western, and even Saudi expert on Saudi Arabia has forecast the demise of this regime, whether it was at the end of King Abdulaziz ibn Saud's life, when people said this was a personalistic mission and it's going to fall apart, whether it was during the Arab nationalist phase of Gamal Abdel Nasser, people said the Saudis are goners. After the Iranian revolution, people said, oh, the Islamist wave is going to sweep them over. During the Arab Spring, Saudi Arabia was the least affected country. So bottom line? Bottom line is, in the long run, every regime is in trouble. But in the long run, we're all dead. And so far... (laughs) 
And so far, Saudi Arabia has a pretty good track record of stability. Let me take, let me take a substance of your argument, that I, as I heard it, to the other side. And, and your opponents are arguing that challenging your claim that the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia is basically unconditional, they point out examples of times when Saudi Arabia has been very unhappy with the positions the United States has taken, that they feel that they are checked and challenged and there's nothing unconditional about it. Mark Lagan. Well, it, it, we would say it is fair to call this an unconditional uh, relationship. The United States regularly under law passed by Congress finds Saudi Arabia to be in the cellar in terms of uh, religious persecution, human trafficking. It doesn't use the sanctions that uh, uh, the United States can because it waives it. Um, it is a false dichotomy to say we have to have the relationship as it has been for decades or it's a divorce. It's, the burden of proof is on us to say what a conditional relationship would be. I'll tell you, we should tie our arm sales to asking specific things of the Saudis. For instance, audit all those finances of your charities and your private organizations and individuals that have been funding education around the world that has been creating um, radical extremists. You need to change your male guardianship laws. Ask for those things and tie arm sales to them. Mark, Mark accused the Saudis of exercising blackmail against the United States on a number of occasions. And he just called for us to use arms sales as a lever to get them to change their domestic politics. I think people in Saudi Arabia would say that's blackmail. Now, I would say blackmail, schmackmail, it's diplomacy, right? <laughs> but, but, the, but the question is, how receptive are not just governments, but domestic public opinion to outsiders coming in and telling them how to rearrange their domestic social affairs, even with the best intentions, and then saying, and if you don't do that, we're going to withhold X, Y, or Z. I actually think that that would push back the possibilities of whatever change there might be in Saudi Arabia, because people don't like outsiders to tell them what to do. What's wrong with that argument? Because I'm sure that you disagree with it. If I may. Yeah, Um, Mark There's an interest-based case for the distasteful side of of the Saudi policies at home. That's why the domestic matters. U.S. credibility in the world is harmed irreparably if we are standing with such a retrograde power, not only authoritarian but positively medieval in the way it treats people for small crimes with execution and lashing. We don't have to uh, sue for divorce. But let's be tougher in the relationship. Okay, I want to hear from Jim Jeffrey and then Madawi. Yeah, I, I think Mark may be confusing the European Union or maybe the Scandinavians with the world. This idea of the world, all 180 nations complaining about Saudi Arabia and its behavior, most of the world is kind of down there, probably in your categories uh, four, five, six, and seven with Saudi Arabia. How many countries of the 180 are in those last four categories? Well, uh, uh, there are a lot who are in those last categories. Thank you. But if not for, if the United States doesn't stand up for these uh, values, no, but what I'm trying our to say credibility is, you're trying to say that it's a liability it. to have such a uh, stinking fish well, of an it, ally, if we and that this runs into trouble. If, if we I've criticize Russia for that. killing civilians in Syria, but we help uh, Saudi Arabia kill them in Yemen, we look like hypocrites. That I've, harms our power. That harms our interests. Madawi. That's a well, good point. I want to let Madawi uh, Jim, I would like to ask you, how could you justify sendi- sending your American troops to liberate the women in Afghanistan while at the same time sending the same troops to, uh, to protect a regime such as the Saudi regime who oppresses its women? We're not saying that the U.S. should interfere in the domestic affairs of countries. That's not acceptable in international law, what we are saying is resolve the contradiction. You cannot be liberating Afghan women and supporting the regime that oppresses me. We didn't send our troops to Afghanistan to liberate women. I'm that was happy. part of the discourse at the Wait time. I do Wait remember. I, I am not going to be responsible for the idiocy that our government has put out publicly, including what I said. I'm going to talk about... <laughs> you know, we... Uh... We so appreciate honesty and candor and Intelligence Squared, and I think we, I think we just scored a new high. I'm going to talk about why we went in there. We went in there because we'd lost 3,000 people one fine day in September 2001. 
That's why we went in there. And that's why we do a lot of other things in the world. Uh, this idea that our foreign policy is all about interfering in uh, the internal affairs of very, very different societies that the best of us know very little about for our purposes to make them look more like us is a mistake as a guy who's been sent out there for decades to do it. I'm a, uh, uh, I'm a reformed uh, a nation builder. <laughs> I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator, and we have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. The special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. If you can stand up, tell us your name and question. Hi, my name is uh, Kelm Togas. If we stop supporting Saudi Arabia, how does that embolden Iran, and what does that do internationally if Iran is emboldened? What would be the consequences of a, of a distancing in the relationship? Yeah, it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, the U.S. can have uh, good relations with many uh, countries in the Middle East, at, at least in the Persian Gulf. So, uh, the U.S. has other choices. For example, recently it had worked with Oman, another country in the Persian Gulf, to reach an agreement on Iran's nuclear uh, program. So there is diversification. But to put all your eggs in one basket and give Saudi Arabia this unconditional support is counterproductive. It's actually... No, I'm not arguing that you know, the U.S. should intervene in Saudi Arabia to change the situation in favor of Saudis. Re- uh, change is not going to come from the U.S. And the U.S. specifically had a very bad record at instigating political change in countries in a successful way. Uh, that was a great question, and we got a great answer, because we've now gotten into what do we do uh, if we do pull back from Saudi Arabia? We'll replace Saudi Arabia with Oman. In terms of where we put our eggs, Saudi Arabia is a barn. Oman is an outhouse and not a very big one. (laughs) We need to do serious foreign policy work, folks, all around the world for your security and the security for a lot of people outside of the United States as well. You don't do that with Oman. Um, I can let a, a short, a, one more size. short round. I'm sorry, it's not about size. Small countries can have more impact when they don't have regional ambitions like Saudi Arabia and Iran. The reason why the nuclear agreement worked with Oman is because Oman is small and doesn't have uh, regional ambitions like Iran and Saudi Arabia. So I like Oman. Equal distance. Equal distance. I think Madawi is absolutely right that, that it's a mistake for the United States to say we have to pick sides in the Middle East. I think we should try to have good, regular relationships with every major country in the Middle East, which is why I thought the nuclear agreement was a good idea. But that does not mean that Iran doesn't have regional ambitions. And I think that if you're looking at a Middle East that is in flames, where there are no really stable governments, it would be a mistake for us to distance ourselves from Saudi Arabia at a time when Iran, frankly, is winning the regional balance of power game. I'm John Donvan. Closing arguments and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator, and we have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, the special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. And the mic's coming down your left-hand side. Thank you. I'm Minky Warden from Human Rights Watch. Um, the point of a special relationship should be that you're able to get something done. So my question is for the against team. What specific human rights advances or advances on women's rights can you point to over the duration of this special relationship that we might not have had by using leverage and influence on human rights? Jim Jeffrey. As our opponents have noted, in terms of human rights for women, Saudi Arabia is at the bottom of the barrel. Uh, And the question is, is that the purpose of a special relationship, to make countries... Now, this is a question to the audience and specifically to you. Is it your belief that we're out there with all of our guns and all of our military and all of our importance and power in the world to make these people follow our norms? I don't think so. I'm going to let that be rhetorical to the audience, but I want to let the other side... No, but I want to let no, see if the other side wants to bite on it. Uh, well, Mark I, just, I want to respond to some of the things that Jim has been saying, articulately, um, but occasionally wrong. It is not to uh, 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 you know, suggest that, that we want 
every country internally to copy the United States. We're talking about universal values here, and I would take the step forward that pluralism in a country, access to justice, freedom of expression, religious freedom, protecting civilians from uh, harm, these are the true path to stability as opposed to cozy relationships with some of the darkest autocracies in the world. Um, A little bit forward, so into the light. Thanks. So for the against team, I have a question for you. How do you feel about the international community's uh, opinion on the U.S. supporting a country that commits various human rights abuses at the same time we're criticizing Russia and Iran for committing these? Again, I'm going to pass on the question because I think that we've covered it, and it breaks my heart to do that to you. (laughs) You You know what might work? What might work is if you said, do you think the U.S. practice of supporting a country responsible for such abuses is going to blow back in a negative way on the U.S., and therefore they should step back? Would that be a good idea? Uh, It's a good question, particularly the way John reformulated it. Uh, There is an international community that is up there in the U.N., it's in NGOs and such, and then there's the international community that I've dealt with for 35 years. That international community worries about the real security threats. And what countries are motivated by is whether we stand by our allies. I myself didn't know if we did the right thing abandoning Mubarak from the standpoint of he was a total loser by the time he left and it was clear he was going down. But what happened around the world was we got a hell of a lot more reaction and blowback around the world for letting a good ally go who put two divisions into uh, Saudi Arabia in 1990 to stand with us against Saddam than we have ever gotten for our human rights cozying up with somebody who's violating them. That's the way the world works for those of us doing it. The United States won't be able to and maybe shouldn't try to change the internal affairs of other countries overnight. But it would be a more stable and prosperous world if there was movement in that direction. I'll tell you one way we won't get there uh, faster is to continue to have the, uh, the, the relationship that we have now, which is largely unconditional. Barack Obama had misgivings. He said it was complicated, as you quoted it. But we've sold $116 billion in arms to Saudi Arabia in the eight years that he was president. We have an unconditional relationship. That's not going to get you more slowly in the direction okay. of reform. Thank you, sir, for your question. Oh, no, uh, right here. Yeah, thanks. Um, hi, my name is Kylie McKenna, and I'm representing the Staten Island School of Civic Leadership. Welcome. As evidence, you stated how the rights of people of Saudi Arabia are being denied, proving that we cannot support this relationship. But if we go back to 300 years ago, to the Revolutionary War, we had slaves and we had unequal rights to women and both Native Americans. Would France and Spain both leave us because of what we had done? Thank you. I'm going to laugh. Let's go into Madawi. I, I, I think the word leave us is not on the agenda of this debate. It is about changing uh, what is called a special relationship, the unconditional relationship, into something that is more complicated. The U.S. cannot just jump and save countries because it doesn't work. In 1979, the major ally of the U.S., the Shah of Iran, fell under the pressure of a mass revolution, and the U.S. couldn't do anything, despite the fact that the U.S. had close connection with the intelligence services of Iran, with the, with the Iranian government. And the same thing will happen in Saudi Arabia. If there is a problem, the U.S. cannot and perhaps will not be able to save the regime. So it is time to switch that relationship from an unconditional support to the regime to as support of the Saudi people who are actually going to be there after the regime disappears. And the relationship will become stronger if the U.S. distance itself from the excesses of the Saudi regime. Okay, I want to take one more question right down the aisle here, sir. Good evening. My name is Connor Osteen. Uh, my question is for the against side. Uh, going to the geopolitical interests, I think I'm still a little confused on some of this. So what exactly is our interest in containing Iran at this point? These are two powers that both have regional aspirations. Why do we choose one over the other? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And believe me, the last administration actually wrestled with that. Essentially, 
There are two kinds of countries in the world from a geopolitical standpoint. Those who are trying to change the global order in some kind of illegitimate and typically violent way, that's the Soviet Union, it was Japan and Germany, it's been Iran, it's North Korea, and there's those regimes, some of which are pretty deplorable internally, that basically are willing to live with and to one or another degree, half-heartedly, in a goofy way often, are willing to work with us to preserve that. Uh, international order, which benefits us all. Saudi is in the latter category. Iran is the former category. For me, that closes the case. Um, so given the religious center of power um, in Saudi Arabia, I have been given no confidence that there are going to be um, significant changes possible what indications have you seen that within Saudi Arabia there are concessions that are going to be feasible? Well, uh, we're not arguing that there should be concessions. Uh, we're not arguing that American policy... What kind of relationship is right, that? We're, we're arguing that we have... <laughs> no concessions? <laughs> thank, thank you, Mark. <laughs> we're, we're not arguing on our side that we should be pressing Saudi Arabia for concessions on their domestic politics. We're arguing that the leverage we have with Saudi Arabia should be used to secure America's chief interests in the region vis-a-vis counterterrorism, al-Qaeda, and ISIS, where we do share interests. The questioner is absolutely right that what leverage we have on Saudi Arabia is not going to move this huge boulder about social change in Saudi Arabia. We should use that leverage for specific foreign policy goals where we might actually get some movement. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. So, round three, closing statements by each debater in turn. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Mark Lagan, a fellow and distinguished senior scholar in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Thanks for listening to our case. Um, Like uh, Jim Jeffrey, I served as a diplomat at the State Department. In late 2008, I visited Saudi Arabia as the ambassador at large to combat human trafficking for the United States. Um, There's a large problem of human trafficking in uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, Of the 27 or 28 million people who live there, a good 10 million of them are foreigners who are working as migrant workers um, or as domestic workers or in other forms. Um, Of all the countries I visited as the U.S. envoy to combat human trafficking in Latin America, Europe, Eurasia, in no capital did I feel that I was received with more of a distinct air of dismissiveness than in Riyadh. Um, And that includes all of the autocratic allies of the United States of the Gulf. Why? Because on the human trafficking report, Saudi Arabia was in the lowest category, and on uh, religious freedom, a country of uh, particular concern subject to U.S. sanctions. But we waived them. Why was the Saudi regime so unconcerned about dialogue? Not as a human rights question, but because the special relationship is largely unconditional. We argue the United States doesn't need Saudi Arabia as much as it once did, especially for oil that an unquestioning association with Saudi Arabia, um, given its executions, its gender apartheid, its harm to civilians in in its actions in Yemen, hurts U.S. standing and interests. And we would argue that the regime and the relationship are sturdy enough that it can withstand some conditions and some demands. Short of a divorce, unquestioning alignment with Saudi Arabia needs to end. Thank you, Mark Lakin. The motion, the special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness, and here making his closing statement against this motion, Gregory Gauss, professor and head of international affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. Our friends on the other side want to eat their cake and have it too. They would have you think that the United States would not lose anything in terms of the value, the foreign policy values that it gets from its relationship with Saudi Arabia by putting domestic Saudi issues at the forefront of the relationship. I think that this audience is too smart to buy that. You know that if something, if you, if you change something, people are going to want to change how they deal with you. The Middle East is in flames right now. 
Weak and failed states are at the root of that crisis, from Libya to Syria to Iraq to Yemen. I think it would be the height of folly to put at risk a relationship that has endured for decades and been valuable for the United States when that country, Saudi Arabia, is itself pretty stable and has influence in the various conflicts occurring in the region. I think it would be a profound mistake for us to experiment with this relationship at a time when so many parts of the Middle East are unstable, convulsed in wars, civil wars, where regional war is a possibility. So I ask you to vote no on this motion. Thank you. Thank you, Gregory Goss. And the motion again, the special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. And here making her closing statement in support of the motion, Madawi Al-Rashid, a visiting professor at the Middle East Center at the London School of Economics. Uh, my colleague, Professor Goes, uh, wrote on the back of one of my books, um, and I quote, no one writing in English follows the Saudi political scene more closely and more critically than she does. He knows that he and I cannot be sitting in Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, debating this. And this is the problem. By oppressing Saudi people, Saudi Arabia loses the brightest people who are actually the future of the country. Quite Today, there are 100,000, slightly more than that, Saudi students studying in the U.S. If those people utter a word of criticism of the Saudi government, they sabotage their scholarship. And also, they can get their passports confiscated or even their nationality withdrawn. Those people are going to seek asylum nowhere but in this country. And if we all our, uh, the Saudis who have been educated leave the country, we're going to leave the space, a vacuum, that is going to be filled by people, exactly the same people who perpetrated that horrible act on 9-11. I just want to conclude by giving you one personal story and allow me to share it with you. I was in the process of publishing a book called A History of Saudi Arabia, and the Saudi Their efficient intelligence services found out that I was writing this book in London. So the ambassador, Saudi ambassador, calls my father and says that he's going to take disciplinary action if I publish a history book. And I was actually outside Saudi Arabia. Imagine what would have happened to me if I was in Saudi Arabia. So basically, I went ahead and published the book. So what I'm saying is that if There are many Saudi women and men like me who would like to see a better future. If all of those people don't go back, then there is no future, not only for Saudi Arabia, but for a U.S.-Saudi relationship. Again, uh, our motion is this. The special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. And here, making his closing statement against the motion, James Jeffrey, a distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute. Uh, Thank you, John. Uh, Mark's visit to Riyadh rings true because I've had a visit very similar to that on a somewhat different subject with a somewhat uh, similar response. But I want to talk about a third visit of American officials to Riyadh in the summer of 1990. Saddam had gobbled up Kuwait in two days, and everybody was worried that the whole Middle East would blow up. The Saudis were horrified and frightened of Saddam. They were also frightened about America possibly deploying troops leading to upheaval in the kingdom. Uh, The American delegation came out and said, we'll stand by you, but you have to stand by us. We have to go all the way if we have to. This isn't just defending Saudi Arabia, although we'll do that. This is going into Kuwait and throwing them out if we can't get them out diplomatically. The Saudis thought long and hard, and they said yes. For 12 years, good things flowed in that region from that one decision. The defeat of Saddam, the liberation of Kuwait, a Kurdistan in northern Iraq that is one of the real success stories of the Middle East, the Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestinians, the peace between Jordan and uh, Israel, and many other things as well. That's what the Saudis are there for. This president or the next one is going to get one of those famous calls at 3 o'clock in the morning. My argument tonight is 
We need that country. That country needs us. If we tamper with that relationship for whatever superficial or secondary reason, they may not be there the way we need them at a very, very dangerous moment for both them and for us. Thank you very much. Please vote against this. Thank you, James Jeffrey. And that concludes our closing statements. It's all in now. I have the final results. You have voted twice. Remember, it's the team whose numbers who changed the most between the first and the second vote that determines our winners. The motion being this, the special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. In the first vote, 28% of you agreed with that. 26% were against. 46% were undecided. Close to a split. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion... The special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. They went from 28% to 31% in the second vote. They picked up three percentage points, which is the number to beat. Let's look at the other team. Against, the first vote was 26%. Their second vote was 58%. They picked up 32%. The team arguing against the motion. The special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness. Our winners, our congratulations to them. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa is director of research. And I'm John Donvan, your host and moderator. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information on that or to purchase tickets to future events, visit IQ2US.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rhine, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmel. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you.